We're continuing our Acts series this morning, and um, we're in Acts 14, if you want to turn over there, but the book of Acts kind of naturally divides in two halves, and so we've sort of said, okay, look, it's kind of like Acts 1 through 12 is season 1, like a TV show, and then Acts 13 uh, through 28 is season 2, and so if you think, if you like to think of it that way, this is season 2, episode 2 of the book of Acts, and we're going to talk about this idea of finding uh, meaning in our struggle. Are any of you having Olympic withdrawals? You know, just sort of, what, what do I do with myself at night? I can't watch tape-delayed um, footage of the, the Olympics. Um, uh, we, we kind of are in our home. I mean, I was telling the 9 a.m. service that Sophia and Nora have kind of been reenacting different parts of the Olympics. The other night, they kind of had a, a quasi-volleyball game going, and they wanted to be, I, I don't know, and, and then they were doing a gymnastics thing. And so it's just sort of been fun. And then we, we thought about, you know, how old they were going to be the next time the Olympics come around. I mean, that's kind of a frightening parent moment. Like, oh my gosh, really? 11? You know, so, um, but, but um, also, we're also kind of in the process, and maybe coincidentally here, of trying to figure out what different activities the girls are going to do this fall. And if you're a parent, you know this routine. You know, they're going to do this, or are they going to do that? And in the process of exploring different things, we try to just pick one or two things and narrow it over the years, you know. But, but in the process of that, we, we discovered that there are some folks, and, and they might have been be in the service this morning that that lead kind of a, a swim team sort of thing. What's very competitive, a swimming. I met a guy this morning who told me that he was part of a, a, a let's see, a national championship, maybe a world championship. Uh, no, it was a national championship swim team. He said they counted up the miles that they swam. It was twenty four thousand miles of swimming. Enough to circumnavigate the globe. And he said, and that was just to get to the point of Olympic trials, you know. And when you think about these, these I don't know if you, which parts of the, the ceremonies or the, uh, the Olympics that you notice, but, but, you know, there's something about that moment where they stand on the podium and then the parents are crying. And you think, I mean, Holly and I, we're not, you know, we're in our mid-30s, but we're kind of at the point where we're starting to relate a little more with the parents at these seasons, you know. And we're thinking, oh my gosh, all those hours and hours of hauling them to lessons and and all the dollars spent, and kind of realizing that there's this whole world behind the scenes here of these kids who've been basically training every day for their, for their whole lives, since they're like eight years old maybe, you know, going to swim meets and swimming and, and all of this stuff, and realizing that it all kind of leads to this one moment, and when it works, it works, and when it doesn't, it's devastating, but that's the thing that it's all for. And it made me wonder if part of our joy, even in the Olympics, is because we love to see people sacrifice and push through a struggle and then finally arrive at the place that they'd sort of been hoping for. And so the question maybe if we were to zoom out from Olympics and athletics and zoom out to life itself, the question that we would ask ourselves this morning is, what is it that gives meaning to our struggle? What is it that kind of is a framing story that helps us to make sense of the hardships of life. Now, when I say the word struggle, I'm not talking about our struggle with sin. I'm talking about our struggle just in persevering, the struggle of life, ordinary life. I think one of the things that's maybe one of the myths of our culture is that love doesn't require any work. Or that if it really is true love, then how come it's this hard? It shouldn't be this hard. If you're single and you're here this morning and you've heard that or you've believed that, I would recommend talking to some folks who've been married for a while. 
And they'll tell you that it's because it's love that you'll work hard at something. And in, in the same way, you think of these, these athletes kind of saying, okay, for the love of this, I'm going to work hard and endure this. And so we, have to, we, we, we want to know what is it that kind of gives meaning to the struggle, to the hardship, to the work, maybe even to the, or, the work of pushing through the ordinariness of life. Maybe it's, you know what, this, my struggle is not that things are especially hard. My struggle is that things are just sort of mundane. How do we get through this? What is the thing that gives meaning to it? We're sort of in this, you know, quasi-postmodern thing, maybe less now than a few years ago, but people like to say that there is no framing story. They like to say that there's nothing that really gives meaning to our actions and to our lives and to our struggle and it's really just life and sorry and, and you know if you, if you have as much fun as you can and actually if you read Ecclesiastes the writer would agree <laughs> the wonderful thing about reading the book of Ecclesiastes is it really identifies with the sort of meaninglessness of life look they do this and then it results in death and so who cares and and there's there's a sense in which Ecclesiastes is in our scripture to to say yeah I get it if this is your framing story, there's not much, is there? It, is sort of, it does sort of all end with the grave. It does sort of all end in the same place. The rich and the poor all end up at the grave. So who cares? It doesn't matter. And that is a point of, of, of agreement, it seems, when our culture says there is no framing story. There is no meaning-giving story. There's just work and life and a little bit of happiness and a whole lot of sadness, and then you die. So enjoy it while you can. But the truth is, we need a narrative. We need stories to kind of fill the world with meaning. The French philosopher, theologian Paul Ricoeur said this, We tell stories because in the last analysis, human lives need and merit being narrated. We tell stories because there's something about our lives that it requires us to narrate it, to, to, to make sense of it, to have a beginning and an ending. The whole history of suffering cries out for vengeance and calls for narrative. We're trying to make sense of it. Is there a narrative that gives meaning to our struggle? And as much as our culture or people might like to say, you know, and I'm not religious, I don't believe in God, I don't go to church, I don't really need a framing story. The truth is, I suspect that everybody has a framing story. And the question really is not, do you believe in a, in a meta-narrative or, or a large meaning-giving story? Maybe the question is, what is that story? And is it an adequate one? A few months ago, Time Magazine put on its cover the history of the American dream. For a lot of people who say, I don't have a framing, I don't believe in framing stories, I don't believe in a meaning-giving story, actually this is their story. This is the thing that sort of wakes them up on a Monday morning or helps them push through the long hours of the, of the end of the week. This is the, the reason why they, they, they travel or they do this or they do that because they're saying, look, Really, if I could have that kind of life, if I could narrate the story of my life to be, I lived, I worked hard, I conquered, we got that house, we vacationed in that place, our kids went to these colleges, then we have made it. And the question we want to ask ourselves this morning is what kind of story is large enough to give meaning to our struggle in life? What kind of story is large enough to give meaning 
to our struggle. Is it living for our family? Is it living to make a difference? What is it that's a large enough story to give meaning to the everyday stuff of life, the struggle in life? Acts 14 is the story of Paul, and he's continuing to do these uh, ministry things that parallel Peter's ministry. This is Luke's way of kind of saying, look, if you liked Peter in season one, I know he's gone. The author kind of killed him off. Not really, but you know, he faded out. But if you like that guy, the new hero in season two is also just as cool. And so you, you had Paul's sermon in Acts 13 that mirrors a lot of Peter's sermon in Acts 2. And then now you have Paul healing a crippled man in Acts 14. That's very much like Peter healing the crippled man outside the temple in Acts And so you have these parallel moments. It's Luke's way of kind of saying the same Jesus is at work through his church. But where we're going to pick up the stories after the healing, after the miracle here in verse 11. Seeing what Paul had done, the crowd shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have taken human form and come down to visit us. And they referred to Barnabas as Zeus and to Paul as Hermes since Paul was the main speaker. And the priests of Zeus whose temple was located just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates. And along with the crowds, he wanted to offer sacrifices to them. I mean, imagine this. Whoa! Now, it's possible that these people thought what was going on was the fulfillment of an old poem. Ovid, a Greek poet, had written this, this, this story about the gods coming down to visit them. And it's possible that that's what they think is going on. And they're saying, this isn't Paul and Bart. This is Zeus and Hermes. This is... Incredible, this is what we've waited for. And Paul, it says this in verse 14. And when the Lord's messengers, Barnabas and Paul, found out about this, they tore their clothes and protest and rushed out into the crowd. And they shouted, people, what are you doing? I mean, imagine this. It's be like walking you know, into the, the arena and the crowd is screaming and they're chanting your band name, you know, or whatever it is, just... Have the, have the rock and roll fantasy with me for a moment, you know, and they're screaming your band name, one more song, one more song. And you come out on the stage and instead of striking up the band, you say, what are you nuts? Stop doing that. I'm like, what? But we bought all your albums. I know you wasted your money. What? <laughs> so people, what are you doing? We are humans too, just like you. We are proclaiming the good news to you. Turn to the living God and away from such worthless things. For it's God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And in the past, He permitted every nation to go its own way. Nevertheless, He hasn't left Himself without a witness. He has blessed you by giving you rain from above as well as seasonal harvest and satisfying you with food and happiness. This is Paul saying, look, all the things that you think make life work, All the things that you think make life rich and wonderful and blessed and great and happy and successful, all of those things, they come from God. He's the source. It's Him. And even with these words, they barely kept the crowds from sacrificing to them. Can you imagine this? I mean, just put yourself in this story for a moment. It's not us. We're humans. It's God. I don't know. Come on, guys. Let's worship them. What? And Jews from Antioch and Iconium arrived and won the crowds over. And then they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Whoa, whoa, what? What just happened here? I thought Paul was a god. And now they're, 
what? Crowds are fickle, aren't they? <laughs> Reminds us of another crowd who one day cried, Hosanna, it's the king. Not long after said, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Luke wants us to know that crowds are fickle. It doesn't last. Luke wants us to believe that whatever you associate the good life with, that all of it is fleeting. Maybe if we were to kind of say, okay, so what is a story that's large enough to kind of find meaning for our own lives and our own struggle in it? What is it? Is it success? Maybe the word success comes to mind. And when you think of that, you think of a number of things. Maybe you define success as a moderate living or these kinds of trips or Maybe you define success in different ways. Maybe there's a Christian way to kind of dress up success. We call it influence. Right? Well, I just, oh, I'm, I don't chase success, but I just, we just want the Lord to give us more influence. But then influence is kind of this thing where popularity meets power, right? Where you're well-loved and the people give you power. And so Paul is at the pinnacle of that. I mean, this was the moment where Paul could have looked at Barnabas and said, dude, 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 we got it. We've arrived. We have one million Twitter followers. I mean, this is it. This is as good as it gets. Popularity meets power. They're being treated like gods. Is that what success is? And yet, it changes in an instant. I remember Jim was telling, you know, I've talked to Jim, I've talked to several others of you that are in different business fields that you've said, okay, look, in my field or in my industry, you can be on the top one day and then you could be on the bottom the next day thrown out. I suspect there are a lot of industries like that. And you feel like, oh, we were, all, we were the best. We were like on the cover of Fast Company. We were entrepreneurs of the year. We did this. We came up with this. I mean, MySpace, anybody, you know? <laughs> You can be all the rage, and then all of a sudden, you're done. It's over. It's what? What happened? They're going to stone you now. It's kind of funny. It's a little bit like the week that Michael Phelps had at the Olympics, his first event. You know, he comes in fourth, and everybody's like, oh, he's washed up. It's, uh, Beijing was the peak. He'll never be the same. You know, two days later, they're like, the greatest Olympian ever. <laughs> you know? People are so fickle. You can't gauge your success based on that. It's too fickle. So, all right, all right, well, maybe it's not success. Maybe, Glenn, yeah, we, we've all kind of figured out success is not a large enough story to be the framing story. It's too flimsy of a frame for our lives. I know, I know. It's, it's really it's self-fulfillment. And that's what people start to say. They say, well, you know what? Success, I don't really care about success. I just want to do something I love. And that's not so bad. It doesn't sound so evil. It's not wicked. It's not a sin. But it's also very deceptive though, isn't it? Because self-fulfillment is very appealing. But let me tell you something about the most dangerous sins. The most dangerous sins are taking good things and making them ultimate things. Taking something that is good within this framework but asking it to be this. And that's something it can never be. And so this happens with parents and children. Family, it's all about my family. I just want my family to be... And all of a sudden you've made family your framing story, but that's not large enough to sustain you. 
Because one day your family will hurt you. One day your children may say things that wound. And then you're stuck. Well, what do I do with this friend? This was what I gave my whole life about. And I've lost it. Self-fulfillment is one of those things that sound good. And it's good. It's great to have things that help you along the way. Several years ago in 2008... When I was about to turn 30, now you can do the math and figure out my age, I, 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 had, a fr- I had a friend in his 60s who said, Glenn, l- let me help you process about the direction of your life. And I was weighing out, when do I make the switch from music to, to more of, of preaching and pastoral stuff? And he led me through an amazing exercise that helped me sort of discover strengths and gifts and passions and, and helped me choose a trajectory for my life. I believe in all of that, but you, we cannot make that grid the ultimate grid. It's just not strong enough. Because Paul didn't lay on that ground that day after they had stoned him and say, God, I feel so alive right now. This is really using my strengths. I mean, my strength finder is number one. Being, getting stoned by others. Now, see, there's a funny way to say that. <laughs> I, had to be, I had to be careful there. <laughs> Paul didn't get up and say, Woo! Sorry. Self-fulfillment is not a big enough story to get you up after you've been on the ground. Stone. People stoning you. See, we can't recover from it. Okay. Just move on. Martin Luther had a Latin phrase that he used to describe sinful nature, and it basically translated means a life curved in on itself. A life curved in on itself. When you start to make your own fulfillment, your own happiness, your own stuff, the ultimate, instead of little rewards, a little reward along the way, but you make it the ultimate, you've made a life curved in upon yourself. I tell you, this is one of the reasons why we struggle as a culture to understand marriage. And so from a single person's perspective, I don't want to get married because I'm afraid they'll ruin my happiness in my life. I really just want someone to fit in with my life and not change any of my goals. (laughs) One day we'll do a marriage sermon in here and talk about how marriage is not like two jigsaw puzzle pieces and you're trying to find the right fit. It's really two moldable lumps of clay trying to figure out who's going to change in what ways so that you can out of two become one. But we spend our whole lives kind of thinking, I am me, and I've discovered me, and now I need to find out who fits me. And you wonder why it's so hard to find that person. Because self-fulfillment has become ultimate. I get nervous when I hear couples uh, on their wedding day kind of make these vows that are something like, I promise to help you pursue all your dreams and to make you the person that you always have already been. I will... And I, just, and I just think, what was wrong with in sickness and in health? For better, right? I mean, there's something about this that everyone who's been married kind of knows. Look, look, buddy, if you're in this to help each other um, mutually find self-fulfillment, that's not marriage. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the honesty of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best amen right there. It's just to laugh. Be like, oh, yep, it's not. It's not. 
Self-fulfillment is not going to help you get through those rough days in your marriage when you're annoyed at the other person and you can't get over this issue or that issue. It's not, going to, it's not a large enough framing story to tell you why you should stick it out and work, keep working on it and keep working on it and keep working on it and keep working on it. It's not enough for that. Self-fulfillment's not enough to help a mother who's at home with kids feeling tired and overwhelmed and exhausted to say, I'm going to keep loving, I'm going to keep serving. Because nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I think what I'd like to do, how I'd like my day to go is for four little voices to ask me for stuff nonstop every minute and then to spill stuff on me and spit stuff on me and help me. And I, yeah, that's just my dream. <laughs> nobody says that. Self-fulfillment is not a large enough story. Verse 20. And when the disciples surrounded him, he got up and entered the city again. And the following day he left for Barnabas with Barnabas for Derby. I want you to underline this phrase, the disciples surrounded him. Maybe in the NIV it says disciples gathered around him. And he goes with Barnabas to Derby. I think Derby is about 60 miles away. Can you imagine this? He's laying on the ground. They've, they've, throwed stone, they've thrown stones at him. He's bruised and he's bleeding. And the disciples gather around him. They say, come on, get up. And Barnabas walks with him. He says, Paul, we ain't done yet. Come on, it's not over. We're going, and we're going there. And they walk to Derby. And when he gets there, he preaches in verse 21, Paul and Barnabas proclaimed the good news to the people in Derby and made many disciples. And then they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch where they strengthened the disciples. How? How did they strengthen each other and urge them to remain firm in the faith? And they told them, if we are to enter God's kingdom, we must pass through many troubles. You could circle that word troubles because it becomes a theme for Paul. Later he would write this letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, and he says this in verse 7, but we have this treasure in clay pots so that the awesome power belongs to God and doesn't come from us because we are experiencing all kinds of trouble, but we aren't crushed, we are confused, but we aren't depressed, we are harassed, but we aren't abandoned, we are knocked down, but we aren't knocked out. Paul found something that was larger than success and larger than self-fulfillment, that was large enough to help him get up that day and encourage other believers and say, look, when you face other troubles, remember, we don't participate in the kingdom of God without all of these troubles. You might say that the kingdom of God is the larger story. It's Jesus and His rule. It's King Jesus and His rule on the earth that is the macro story, the big story, that this is my Father's world, like the old hymn writer said. This is my Father's world. This is His world. He's in charge. He's the King. And He's at work in it. And so when I participate with Him in it, that's what gives meaning to my life. Another way to say it is that only the Jesus story is large enough to give meaning to our story. Only the Jesus story. The story of Jesus coming, walking where we've walked, suffering what we suffer, so that when we go through it, we can know this is not for nothing. If you caught this in the Old Testament reading, essentially Ecclesiastes says over and over again, meaningless, 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 meaningless. So just eat, drink, find joy where you can. If you like your job, good for you. If you don't, hate it for you. But just, it's all meaningless anyway. And then all of a sudden our New Testament reading said, nothing that you do in the Lord is 
in vain. Wait a minute. What changed? What changed? That verse where nothing that you do in the Lord is in vain is at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Last week's sermon pulled heavily from 1 Corinthians 15 because it was all about how Jesus has defeated death. And so something dramatic has changed. Because Jesus is alive now, anything that you do in Him is no longer meaningless. So when you give a cup of cold water to the poor, in Jesus' name... It's never in vain. So, but Glenn, we didn't solve poverty. Poverty. We, we set out to solve poverty, but we, we couldn't do it. That doesn't mean that this was meaningless. It means for that child, for that person, for that village, it is not in vain. Does that make sense? The world only has a, a one grid of determining success, and that is results. What were the results? But Paul says, I have one grid for determining success and meaning. Were you in Christ? Because if your story is wrapped up in his story, then there is a way that you can do your job and love your children and love your spouse and do it all in the Lord that all of a sudden it does not become in vain. The Jesus story gives meaning to our story. There are several ways we could unpack this and talk about the kingdom of God, that phrase, the rule of God, participating in the rule of God. But Jesus preached a long sermon about what it looks like to participate in the rule of God. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so when you find yourself as a business person saying, you know what, I'm not going to do that because that's going to be dishonest. I'm going to go this way. That that may result in the equivalent of people dragging you out and stoning you instead of worshiping you as CEO of the year. But you can know in that moment, you know what, I have participated in the Jesus story. And they dragged him outside the city too. And so this wasn't for nothing. As many of you are school teachers. So, uh, you know, you may listen to other teachers and say, you know what, uh, just, let's just mark the time, get out of here. Who cares about these kids? They're, all, they're too crazy. Their homes are too messed up. It's never, you know. And you say, you know what? I just want to believe that by loving this child and by treating them with dignity, that maybe, maybe God will do... So in Jesus' name, I'm going to treat this little one the way Jesus did. And all of a sudden, there is meaning in that job. An ordinary vocation gets transformed. An ordinary action gets changed because it's not just done, it's done in the Lord. In Christ, you're putting your story inside His story and you're saying, all right, here it is. I'm going to do this well. I'm going to do this with love. I'm going to do this to serve. I'm going to do... And it may result in people applauding you and it may result in people saying, what's the matter with you? Why are you doing that? You know that you're not going to get a raise, right? You know that, the, uh, you know that nobody cares, right? You know that... So you know what? It'd be nice if I got a raise for doing this, but... The thing that gives meaning to my story is how I participate in the Jesus story. And so I'm going to love in Jesus' name. I'm going to go down low and wash the feet of others in Jesus' name. That's my job this Monday. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we'd say, well, Glenn, that's cute. I mean, that's really, that's heartwarming, beautiful, got a tear even. But let's be real. You know, like, I can't live like that. Like, it's just too hard to live like that. Right, I know. 
And it does require God's grace, but you know what else it requires? The people of God. Community. I had you circle the word gather because it shows up twice in this text. I'll just describe the two moments. The first moment is when Paul is laying there on the ground. It says the disciples gathered around him, surrounded him. The next moment is when Paul himself goes to these other believers and he gathers them together. A gathering around and a gathering together. There's nothing more beautiful than when you're going through a time of brokenness and hurt and you've been down, you're down for the count. There's nothing more beautiful, more powerful than when the followers of Jesus, your friends, people that you're in community with, gather around you and say, hey, hey, it's okay. This isn't it. We're not done. We're not done. I know this, I know this is rough. I know those rocks hurt. I know those wounds bleed. I know it's real, but this isn't it. Would Paul have made it to Derby if Barnabas didn't walk with him? The power of gathering around someone else and saying, come on. And maybe for some of us, that's how we participate in the Jesus story, by saying, you know what? Our friend is hurting. We need to surround them. We need to walk with them. We need to gather around. If we were to ask ourselves, how are we reminded of this Jesus story? How are we reminded of this thing that we're part of? Look down at verse 28, verse 26. From there they sailed to Antioch where they had been entrusted by God's grace to the work they had now completed. On their arrival they gathered the church together. There's the gathered together. And reported everything that God had accomplished through their activity. How God had opened the door for, of faith for the Gentiles. And they stayed with the disciples for a long time. They gathered with each other, shared their stories, and they stayed for a long time. Think of that. How are we reminded of this story? When we gather with one another. When we share our stories. When we stay for a long time. You think about the strength of community. And what it means for someone to say, I'm with you in this. I'm gathering with you in this. I'm surrounding you in this. On Friday, Holly and I celebrated 11 years of being married. And um, we're grateful. We're excited. We're tired. <laughs> but you know how every day is lived out is because of, there's a strength that comes from others who are around you. And we've been blessed with amazing friends. This morning I saw one of my friends here in the 9 a.m. who was one of my groomsmen. And um, the night before our wedding, their version of a bachelor party was uh, something like basic training, uh, only not. No ins- anyone who's done basic training, you're far more... I, I, to me, it was like, because I'm weak. <laughs> but... Um, the, the, the basic uh, gist of the, the flow of the night was, Glenn, we're going to put you through a series of physical tests, uh, and, and um, each thing's going to represent something, a challenge in life. And, uh, and if at any time you want to quit, you can quit. But just know that if you quit, we're going to call Holly every hour on the hour of the night before your wedding. It's like you guys, real jerks, you know, just what great, <laughs> a great groomsman, you know. 
And so we were out this field somewhere in the forest, and they're taking me on laps, and I'm running. Each one's taking turns leading me. I'm the only one doing everything, okay? <laughs> and so I'm exhausted, and then everything's symbolic, you know, like there's one guy who's a heckler who's supposed to be the voice of the accuser saying, and he got annoying after a while, you know, and then, and, and then another, one, another one of my buddies, my old roommate, found this, like, log, and, I, and he asked me to follow him in jumping over it, and jumped over it. And he led me around it again because we're going to jump over again. And about the third time, he goes, Glenn, there's going to be issues in your marriage. And he was single. I don't know how he knew this, but he said, he said there's going to be issues in your marriage that you're going to say, why are we going over this again? Why are we talking about this again and again and again? And, so, and he kept leading me to jump over this log again and again. And if only I knew then what I know now, I would have said, thank you, Nate. You're right. That is life. But so we're, we're clearing, jumping over this thing again and again and again. And then one of the last things they did was uh, rolling down hills. So they're like, okay, you're going to roll down the hill, and you're going to, and, and I forget what that even symbolized. <laughs> but I'm doing the hill rolls, and, and by the end of it, I get back, I, I come back up to the top, and I'm just gassed. I mean, I'm gone. I've also, you know what, and, um, and I'm just, I've lost it. I'm just exhausted. And, and, and they're like, come on, one more time. This is, and again, I, I wish I could remember what it stood for. Like, this is, the, 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 one more time. Don't quit now. And I was like, I don't know. I'm just, I can't. And one of, uh, my best man grabbed me and he says, come on, Glenn. We're going to roll down this one together. And he grabbed me by the shoulder and we rolled down the hill. And we rolled down together and I got to the end of it. And we both just, and I, I looked around and all the guys had done it too. And we got to the bottom and I sat there, and I just started crying. And all of us just started praying in that moment. All of a sudden became this holy moment. And you start to realize, I, I can't, I easily forget the big story that I'm part of. I easily forget what gives meaning to my struggle. But when I gather, when there are people who gather around me, when there are people I gather together with, Paul says, we strengthened the church. We don't gather on Sundays because it's nice and we have a nice event. It's a beautiful building. We gather on Sundays because we're here to give strength to one another. But beyond that, the gathering together and the gathering around. Guys, if you can put the, the, the slide up that has all three of the things, that's sharing stories and gather with each other, sharing our stories and staying a long time. The other piece of this is it happens as we gather with each other in smaller settings. This summer we've had our, our house fellowships, our dinner groups. How many of you have been part of that, our dinner groups? Okay, a good number of you. We had 17 different dinner groups. Holly and I got to visit about five. You know, we, you know, we didn't make it to all of them, but not bad. Five, you know, out of 17. You know. And um, they're about to wrap up. Our basic, the basic thing we asked people to do is you said, look, open up your home, facilitate a potluck. Each one share stories about how God is at work in each other's lives and then pray for one another. Basically, in a nutshell, eating, storytelling, praying. That's kind of this. Because as we share our stories, sometimes it takes someone else to see what you don't see and to say to you, you know, I hear you talking about this and I can't help but wonder if this is how your story intersects with God's story. And I hear you talking about it and I just can't help but wonder if this is where it meets together. I want to start more of these this fall. I want, my hope is, look, I'm not interested in it right now. I'm not interested in Bible studies or video devotionals or any, all those things are wonderful and great. What I want is for us to gather in homes, eat together, share our stories, help each other find where their story intersects with God's story, and then pray with one another. It's pretty simple stuff. It's early church kind of stuff. 
But this is how we strengthen each other. And so I'm wondering, those of you that have been leading it, if you want to re-up and say, yeah, I'm in, sign me up for more this fall. Or those of you that haven't facilitated it, say, you know what, maybe I, I, I want to facilitate it. And we'll reshuffle the deck, we'll let people choose new groups and all this stuff. We'll, we'll list them on the website this time so all of you that are visitors can't, you know, you know, don't have to suffer through a PDF attachment or whatever, you know, but you can, you can we, we'll, we'll find ways of making this better. But my heart for us as a community is not just that we gather together on Sundays, but that we gather around each other in homes and meals, sharing, praying. But see that last one, it says they stayed there for a long time, verse 28, and they stayed for a long time. Paul was not a fly-in, fly-out evangelist who came in, got his honorarium and left. Paul cared about these people and he stayed for a long time. You want community? Stay for a long time. Stay for a long time. Community is not the kind of thing where you walk into a church, you attend a couple Sundays, and ah, there's no community here, I'm out. What do you mean there's no community here? Stay. Eat. Pray. Share your stories. Stay for a long time and see what begins to happen in our lives. Amen?